I think it's fair to say that Spike Lee's 1992 film Malcolm X is, along with Do the Right Thing, his best-known film. It's certainly the one that, if you mention Spike Lee's name, people will recall his biopic of Malcolm X. And it's really, in that way, a classic kind of biopic. It, for me, is a fantastic film. Uh, it draws on a really transcendent performance by Denzel Washington, uh, as well as Angela Bassett, and all the side characters as well. It's just a, a deeply uh, resonant film. It has real emotional complexity to it. A lot of that has to do with the artistry of Lee's filmmaking, but really, in the end, I think draws on uh, Denzel Washington's performance. When I teach this, I ask students to imagine what could possibly have won the Academy Award for Best Actor other than Denzel Washington. And I think it's a real question. And for me, it's one of those moments, and there are all too many, to really stop and contemplate what it means uh, to make amazing black cinema in an age of anti-blackness, right? Uh, an age that has not passed and uh, in some ways has just reproduced one and the same. But those sort of accolade questions aside, Lee's artistry, uh, Washington's performance, it is for me one of the hardest films to talk about. And what makes the film uh, difficult uh, to talk about for me is that it is such a conventional film. It takes all of the tropes and structures of biopics, right? The, the youth spent as Malcolm Little and uh, all of its troubles, the transformative moment, the idealism of that uh, post-transformation moment, uh, fall from that idealism, and then reconciliation of life into something uh, bigger and better that, of course, in the case of Malcolm X, ends uh, in his assassination. I will say a couple of things uh, about this. One, the assassination scene leading up to it and the aftermath is some of the best acting I've ever seen on the screen. It has a, an intensity from uh, Bassett and, and Washington that you just rarely, rarely find in any cinema, much less a Spike Lee film. It's also filmed with an aesthetic touch and, and real care and consideration that is Spike Lee at his best. It's what Spike Lee looks like when he has deep commitment and passion, resources, and the actors to really pull off his vision. In that way, I think it is his best film if we're thinking about films on the measure of your conventional uh, Hollywood uh, performance, because uh, Hollywood production, because it really is just finished. It has all of its details, all of its transitions, and not a single scene goes by that isn't edited and acted uh, to perfection. So those things aside, I think it's also really interesting to, to think about where the film came from. So for me, it's interesting to think about this being Spike Lee's best-known film. Thinking about it as Spike Lee's best-known film um, because, not because it is not, but because it does come after a sequence of films, right? It's only four years after. It's a 1992 film, only four years after School Days. 
So he's moved from school days to do the right thing, to mow better blues, to jungle fever, to Malcolm X. And that movement is not only a movement of, uh, of different kinds of resources and different kind of, of, of staffing in, in the film, right, actors, um, but it is a massive shift in voice. And so although it is the most conventional, I think, of any of Lee's films, um, although some of his later films in the 2000s uh, are, are similar, I think it's worth saying that, you know, it, no one expected this kind of film out of a young Spike Lee. Having seen uh, Maybe She's Gotta Have It, but certainly School Days, Do the Right Thing, Mo Better Blues, and Jungle Fever, Lee had really come to be known as a controversial filmmaker, somebody touching on hot-button social issues, you know, all these kinds of uh, cliché phrasings that were also true, that Spike Lee was not only committed to the kinds of things I've spoken of in previous uh, reflections about you know, black bodies, black people, and black life. But he was also interested in being a relevant filmmaker. And I, I have always really loved that part of him. It never goes away. It gets a pause button in cases, uh, in, in some cases. But in the end, he's always wanted to be a relevant filmmaker. And all of those films that precede Malcolm X are relevant. They're talking about, you know, women and sexuality, and she's got to have it, uh, you know, college life at an HBCU and school days, uh, interracial and intraracial conflict and do the right thing, uh, jazz, subculture, genius, uh, obsessiveness, masculinity, domesticity, and Mo Better Blues, uh, interracial sex, as well as a crack epidemic in Jungle Fever. So when he arrives at Malcolm X, there's this interesting moment for me where Spike Lee is absolutely being a relevant filmmaker. You could not find a more relevant figure from African-American history or American history more broadly than Malcolm X. So it's absolutely relevant in that way, and it was marketed as such. I remember, you know, everybody I think remembers the hats, but, uh, you know, and the, the gear that came with the film and, and people were buying, and it was, a, it was a thing to have in the moment. But I think really more than that, for me, um, it was where Spike Lee, I, I remember where, uh, when Spike Lee was saying that black children in the United States should be let out of school and that the state should pay for them to go see Malcolm X, that it had this kind of relevance. When the, he was saying that, a lot of people, you know, from all, you know, racial and political uh, sides of the of what is always the Spike Lee debate, or certainly was in the 80s and 90s, the Spike Lee debate when he came out with the film, they sort of clowned him about that, you know, that he was being self-important. But I think that's exactly where Spike Lee understood his relevance. He understood that the relevance of his filmmaking was that it was going to say something to black children and to black people, uh, adults as well, to black people broadly, so, say something to them about themselves that isn't said elsewhere. If we think ahead eight years to Bamboozled, that's really where Spike Lee is reckoning with, you know, I have been this kind of filmmaker. I've been a filmmaker who's tried to make relevant reflections on black people, black bodies, and black life. Meanwhile, you know, what we're seeing proliferate across black media is largely a reiteration of minstrel shows. And so in that moment where Spike Lee is getting 
you know, sort of mocked for his self-promotion. And, and there's no shortage of self-promotion. I think that's fine. You're, you're trying to make a living and, you know, for him, build a, a, a bit of, of, of money so that he can continue to make the independent films that he wanted. But I think there's really a deeper issue there that he understands the ongoing crisis of black representation and that Malcolm X as a film, Malcolm X as an historical and cultural figure, could not be more relevant. And so in thinking about that relevance, um, I do want in the next piece to talk a bit about the politics, what I, th what I see as the politics of the film Malcolm X, which I think align with the, the figure Malcolm X. But before I move on to that in the next piece, I wanted to sort of think about this film in the trajectory of the films that preceded it specifically around this issue that I keep coming back to around the formation of masculinity, which for him is always deeply ideological, of course, how could it not be? Deeply ideological, but also, again, something in constant crisis mode that we really have to think, not just about, you know, what are alternative forms or what is the nature of masculine identity formation, but also, uh, you know, what other possibilities are there? you know, both in the case of Malcolm X as historical precedent, but also um, in terms of the imaginary space of, of the stage, of the college campus, right? We didn't talk about Jungle Fever, but in terms of, of sex and love. And um, of course, it's actually also at the heart of Mo Better Blues and Do the Right Thing, right? Ways of, of thinking about gendered relations, relations between men, and the relations between men and women and how these could be imagined otherwise. In the case of Malcolm X, I think it's not obvious at first glance how it is a film that is continuous with uh, the previous meditations on the formation of masculinity. At the same time, it's important that he includes at the end, uh, as a voiceover, Ossie Davis reading his eulogy for Malcolm X, which I have to say, every time I watch this film and, and I'm, I, I have everybody listen to and think about in class, I, I, I play the, the, the clip where the, the eulogy is read over a montage of images. And it is so moving and beautiful. It's, it's I think, one of the masterpieces of, of, of American speech making, of American meaning making in language. I mean, Davis is a, as an amazing reader, of course, that's, I mean, he's, he's a, an elite actor and has been for decades for a reason, but he's really at his peak in the composition of this eulogy and its performance in this film. You just cannot get any better than that. But in that, and it's such a central part of, of the film Spike Lee, there is uh, the, the inclusion, and necessarily so, of Davis's own reflections on what Malcolm X meant for uh, visions of black manhood. And he outright says that. He refers to him as, as a prince, as a man, as manhood itself. And so it makes me, as a, as a viewer of the film, read the film backwards, starting from that. You know, what is the exemplary character of Malcolm X? What is the exemplary 
uh, journey of Malcolm X because it's not just a film about Malcolm X as Malcolm X. It's a film about Malcolm Little, Malcolm X, and Malik Shabazz. And so when we think then about that, you know, that, that notion of masculinity, it's not just a, a sort of standing, shining prince, but instead is this broader story, right? It's a narrative about the vicissitudes of masculine formation, right? The way it takes all of these different paths, some of which end, some of which have to die off, some of which live and have to be transformed. Obviously, it goes across three major shifts. There is one, the experience of Malcolm Little. And I think that Detroit Red, in the early part of the film, it's interesting for me... I mean, it follows the autobiography of Malcolm X, right, that, that uh, dictated to Alex Haley. It absolutely uh, follows that book in so many ways, but of course every filmmaker makes selections and also dramatizes cinematically things that that filmmaker thinks are important. And I'm thinking in particular how the film starts, uh, fr sorry, frames uh, Detroit Red with uh, the terror of the Klan, for his family. And the historical sort of, you know, just repeating a story from, from, from Malcolm X's past is absolutely, you know, what that is in terms of the narrative arc of the film and its relation to primary source materials. But at the same time, it is a way of thinking, for me, thinking about how there is a distortion about around identity formation whether it's an identity formation in relationship to blackness or to masculinity, a, a, a sense in which it's born out of racial terror and that one has to understand that movement from racial terror to whatever Malcolm X becomes across the film. In that way, I think that for all the indulgences of uh, at the visual level Spike Lee takes with the Detroit Red era, and it's some of the most visually exciting uh, cinema and, and all of Spike Lee's works. It, it just it's vibrant, it's alive, it's loud, it's exciting, and um, the costuming is is absolutely amazing. And it tells a lot of sort of, not inside jokes, but inside sort of references around, you know, hair straightening, around, around clothing and, and swag. And, but in the end, what it is, is Detroit Red or Malcolm Little's attempt to find himself as a black person and find himself as a man in this place, in relation to these other men, in relation to these other black people. And what we learn, of course, across the film is that all those things that Detroit Red is a part of, whether it's, you know, you know, bullshit underground stuff, you know, drug prostitution trade, you know, just that seedy underlife that he's a part of, what we see in that is that it's a continuation of masculine and racial formation that is in that place, that he is not a single person, but rather he is simply embodying the values that surround him. But those values do not come out of a sort of inherent sinfulness, of course, 
of uh, black people or of poor people or of people in any part of the country, you know, whether it's Detroit or elsewhere, New York City. It's not that it comes out of poverty. It's not obviously that it comes out of some sort of racial whatever. But I think that it comes out for Spike Lee. What he's trying to tell us is that it comes out of racial terror. There's this kind of defeat on the front end for Malcolm Little. A defeat that comes with that racial terror and what it takes from him. Right? It takes from him this idea of belonging in the world as a co-constituent of that world's meaning. And what is left is a boy and then a man who has to make do with what is left. And that le what is left is very, very little. It is to the point of being nothing. And so one invents a self. One invents a world in which there is a, the, the selfish pursuit of whatever, whether it's drugs, sex, money, manhood, etc., through violence, through betrayal, through fear, but also through brotherhood. In that way, I think there's a, a real similarity between Detroit Red's experience and the kinds of experiences uh, documented on Big Brother Almighty or Giancarlo Esposito's character in School Days. Now, they don't map on perfectly, right? They're not exactly the same. One is middle class, you know, college campus kids. The other is, is struggling, you know, hustlers in, you know, uh, you know, you know, 50 years prior, 40, 50 years prior. And so you can't really make that, 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 that parallel too tight, except just to say that what I think what Spike Lee is revisiting there is that out of a broken place, right, broken people emerge. Not a place like poverty, but a place like racial terror, whose message is that black people's worth is nothing. And so why would Detroit Red take himself seriously? Why would he take the lives of his black brothers and sisters seriously? That's transformed in the first masculine relationship, man-to-man -man relationship that he has that is positively transformative, the famous prison scene where, uh, you know, he studies a dictionary and his mentor tells him, you know, look up the definition of black and what do you think about that and as it's read to us, and again, this is a scene I love to show in class and, and for us to sit with, it's extremely unnerving and it's not fabricated, right? We can go find this in dictionaries. And so that, that the way it's terrifying to see or to hear the word and to see because Washington is such a, that's a, a stunning actor, right? To see and hear this reading of the definition of black and the way it reframes for Malcolm Little in prison what his life had been. And it reframes it as not just this is what the world made of me, but this is what I also made of myself. That for me is the key to understanding the broad sort of meaning of um, the broad meaning of Malcolm X as a film. Right, is that it's not simply that the world makes of you something and you rebel against it, but rather that the world makes you something as a black man that then you as a black man make of yourself. What we might just simply call, um, and it's not simple because it's very complicated content, right? 
uh, what we might simply call the internalization of racism, the internalization of the internalizing anti-blackness. And I think we get that in Malcolm Little. The transformation of Malcolm Little to Malcolm X is about that moment of discipline, right? Discipline about how you make yourself, not how you make yourself you know, in, in some sort of merely economic way, although that's definitely a part of the nation of Islam, but how you make yourself as an existential creature. You make yourself, and you can make yourself as a reiteration of the sociogenic conditions of anti-blackness, right? The way society tries to make black people into a certain kind of people. But one of the, I think, the lessons of Malcolm X, and I think this is a deep value of Spike Lee's, is that when you make yourself the way the world, anti-black world, has tried to make you, you internalize your own racism, or you internalize racism, but you can always make yourself otherwise. There's this real commitment, I think, across Lee's work to the idea of self-making and self-invention and self-reinvention. In many ways, I think that's exactly what wake up means at the end of school days, because it recurs again and again across his films, that phrase, wake up. But in school days, I think it's wake up. You know, you have been made a certain way by the world, intra-black or interracial, and all of it does harm. But there's always a capacity for your own self-reinvention. It's not a call for a, a transformation of society first. It's a call for a transformation of self-invention. And the way that's the radicalism, I think, of Spike Lee, I think that's the radicalism of, of how he understands Malcolm X, is the capacity for self-invention through discipline. And in this case, discipline in a religious context. Now that also connects to, I think, a very parallel story about domesticity that we get at the end of Mo Better Blues, right? Where there's something about the relationship of a husband and wife and the creation of a family space, we'll just call it. And by space, I mean like literally the home, children in, in, in both cases of Mo Better Blues and Malcolm X, but also, um, but also the uh, creation of psychological space, right? The self is being made in these moments um, and remade in a relation to, in this case, a woman, right? Not that in the case of Malcolm X, that Betty Shabazz uh, makes Malcolm Malcolm, right? But rather through that relationship, Malcolm, is able, Malcolm X is able to remake himself. Then there's the betrayal of the Nation of Islam, Elijah Muhammad, and his movement outside the nation of Islam and his rediscovery of, of the capacity of self-invention when, he, when he, he goes to Mecca. And his Hajj then is exactly that lesson of the capacity for non or for unending self-criticism and self-reinvention. Now for me, this is where Malcolm X becomes an extension of so many of these interrogations of of black masculine identity in his in Lee's films. We'll keep talking about this when I talk about Get on the Bus, but also talking about Crooklyn. Um, you know, that capacity to constantly reinvent and constantly self-critique. Uh, 
is exactly what I think Lee thinks is missing. But that's the short path and the most substantial path to liberation. But what really, I think, interests me in terms of the twist of Malcolm X is that while that notion of self-invention and self-reinvention as, as a constant theme, like a sort of constant revolution of self, gets a twist at the end. And it gets a twist at the end because, you know, I mean, it follows, you know, one man and his sort of journey and his reinvention of himself. And I don't think that that's separate from masculinity. I think the fact that, you know, the very patriarchal structure of the nation of Islam and the patriarchal structure of Malcolm X's own home, right, uh, and, and his own relationship uh, to his wife and children, I think that idea, ideal of masculinity that he both invents and reinvents is the con main content of the film. But the moment it becomes not a biopic only, right, not just a biopic uh, about Malcolm X, and instead becomes what I would call a Spike Lee film, right, where we start to see something of Lee's assessment of what he's done with great fidelity around Haley's text, and it's putting it on the screen, is that moment where he transitions out of the story of Malcolm X through the eulogy. And the eulogy read by Davis over photographs, again, some of the most powerful cinema I've ever seen. It's very simple. It's just a voiceover and photographs just really wonderfully shot on camera. They, they close for me close the question of masculinity and the fact that manhood is such an important theme in Davis's eulogy tells us that. But then he switches to this, you know, across the world, sort of, not, not across the world, but across the Atlantic world, right? The U.S. and, and South Africa in particular, right? By, by having all of these people say, I am Malcolm X. This is an amazing moment for me, both because I, I think, again, it's Spike Lee's love of and, and uh, uh, love and affection for children. But also, again, now I think we can start to see part of what he loves about children is their, their nonstop, not just capacity for, but uh, practice of self-invention and reinvention. Now those children start to say, I am Malcolm X. But boys and girls say, I am Malcolm X. I don't think that's just because these are adorable children. He could easily have had boys all step up and say, I am Malcolm X. And he has, of course, you know, Nelson Mandela famously say, I am Malcolm X. I just, you cannot even begin, I cannot even begin to explain to my students what it meant in 1992 for Nelson Mandela to show up in, at the end of a film and say, I am Malcolm X. It was just in the moment, it was utterly uh, uh, profound and, and almost shocking in its beauty. Now they, th now they think of you know, Mandela as if he was always free rather than what we knew in the moment, which was that he wasn't, and that this was his moment of, of freedom and statement and, and his own owning of a revolutionary capacity for self-invention. But then boys and girls say, I am Malcolm X. And that's what I want to end with and say, I think that there's in some ways a moment in at the very end of, of Malcolm X that again makes us view the entire film differently. To say that maybe there's something about Malcolm X and his own journey through masculine formation, through his, his, his 
uh, invention and reinvention of his own manhood. There's something in the end about that, maybe at the formal level or the depth, the deep moral and ethical lesson. There's something that transcends gender. You know, it's not just to be adorable that boys and girls say, I'm Malcolm X. I think he's having boys and girls say, I am Malcolm X, because he's saying that there's something about Malcolm X's self-formation, however it is gendered, that is a lesson for, for black people thinking about the future. Now, what that is, is, I, is in no ways for me, you know, about... Uh, about uh, you know becoming Muslim or leaving institutions and finding your own way, or you know it doesn't have that level of content, but I think it's just simply an appeal. I say simply, but it's incredibly complex and difficult to get to get a, to get our heads around. Is this? Uh, is it all comes back to this notion of self-invention? That self-invention, there is self-invention in the wake of racial trauma. But the moment we understand that that black identity formation is born out of racial trauma, we can begin to also think about how other forms of self-invention are possible. Self-invention that pulls back from intra or interracial space into intra-racial space. And how do black people form their own identity? Men, women, any sort of gender you know, it's not gendered, so any kind of gender expression. How do black people think in relation to other black people? Because that's Malcolm X's entire concern, right? It's his relationship with other black people. How is self-invention open and possible there? And to say, I am Malcolm X, is in some way to not say, I am this person. But to say, and it sounds strange, but I am this method. I am this commitment to a certain kind of spiritual freedom that knows no boundaries. I am Malcolm X in the way of knowing and saying that I have no limits on my capacity to reinvent myself at every turn. And in that way, I find Malcolm X, in terms of its final twist, if I'm right about this and how it makes us reread the entire film, to be one of the great existential films. An existential film that can only be understood in the context of the black experience, not just because it's about Malcolm X, but because it's about the constraints, but also the explosive possibilities that come with notions of self-invention and reinvention in the wake of anti-blackness. Because there is nothing quite like being born of racial terror, but to have the capacity to be what Malcolm X becomes. What exactly that is, I think is exactly what Davis says, right? A kind of prince, right? But it's not, when, when Lee turns and says, I am Malcolm X, it's not, I follow Malcolm X. It's, I am Malcolm X because I think whatever form of racial terror that has given birth to my world and to my sense of self, I, like Malcolm X, have the capacity to be otherwise and having been otherwise, to be otherwise again and again and again.